Michael Medved Show. And another great day, another great week, in fact, in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A, a great week for Democrats, is it? They say so. They think so. But there are a lot of people questioning whether the uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is actually should be packaged as a Republican Reduction Act, is a basic desperate desire to show some major accomplishment on the part of Joe Biden before they go into the midterm elections. By the way, the schedule is the Senate passed the act on Sunday. 51 to 50, and uh, then it's going to be going to the House, which is coming back. And uh, the House, it's almost a sure thing because the Democrats have a margin of seven votes. And it went strict party line in the U.S. Senate. Every single Republican voted no. Every single Democrat, yes, including Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Sinema, voted yes. And then that meant that Kamala Harris got to uh, do the greatest achievement of her <laughs> eventful term as vice president so far. Uh, she uh, broke the tie and uh, voted with her party. Uh, we will talk about what next and the one amendment to the act that, honest to goodness, there is no justification for the Democrats uh, uniting again and defeating that amendment which would have protected uh, middle-class taxpayers. And uh, that's something the Democrats apparently did not want to do. Uh, 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. We will also be covering the uh, North Korean bid to offer Russia 100,000 volunteers for war on Ukraine. And uh, how is that going to work out? Uh, we will we will talk about that. And uh, we will also talk about the resolution of a very brief war in the Middle East. Uh, there was a war not between Hamas and Israel, but between Israel and a much smaller terrorist group known as Islamic Jihad. Even the New York Times, which is often very, very anti-Israel and critical of Israel, acknowledges that this could only be called a victory. Uh, what made it possible and what does it mean for Israeli politics and the future of any kind of peace negotiations? We'll talk about that with former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, who will be joining us uh, later in the show. He's also a leading Israeli historian. And uh, there's a piece that tries to make the case that the Democrats have suddenly, unexpectedly gained momentum. Is that true going into what is supposed to be a uh, crucial, crucial uh, coming up uh, midterm election? And the BBC is reporting rising curiosity behind open relationships. Is this the uh, end of civilization as we know it? And what does it actually portend? We will get to that as well on the Michael Medved Show. First off, the uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act. It's a $750 billion in new spending with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie. And uh, you can hear her 
and uh, the Senate Democrats cheering as they pass this act by the thinnest possible margin ever. Uh, clip nine. On this vote, the yeas are 50, the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the vice president votes in the affirmative and the bill as amended is passed. <laughs> Okay, this is uh, uh, recognizes that that it was a very long, hard slog. The uh, New York Times actually says that this bill began in 1969. No, no, really, that's what they claim. They claim it began with Daniel Patrick Moynihan who at the time was an aide to uh, President Nixon, a very prominent aide, who warned about climate change in 1969 and warned that we would have to say goodbye to Washington, we'd have to say goodbye to New York City, we'd have to say goodbye to our civilization unless we did something to curb uh, greenhouse gases. And yeah, that's a long time to be working on a uh, bill. now. The question, of course, is will this uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is really aimed as a piece of climate uh, legislation, will it actually reduce even some of the greenhouse gas emissions? Will it make a difference in that regard, whether or not it makes a difference in uh, inflation, which is what it promises to do? Here is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, who shepherded this bill to its conclusion, uh, claiming that this will not only benefit Americans in terms of their economic circumstances by lowering inflation, it will also save the planet. Listen. This historic bill will reduce inflation, lower costs, fight climate change. It's time to move this nation forward. Senate Democrats began this majority by promising to tackle the biggest challenges facing our country. The Inflation Reduction Act will make good on that promise and serve as the capstone to one of the most productive stretches the Senate has seen in a very long time. Okay, what's difficult here for him and a real problem is that inflation is not something unseeable, unknowable, unreachable, debatable, like climate change is, or the extent of uh, greenhouse emissions. Uh, that doesn't impact people, not now, not directly, it may someday. But the, the idea that inflation reduction, which is promised in the bill, uh, can happen and not be noticed by people or it can fail to happen and the people won't notice their disappointment. Uh, I mean, even Bernie Sanders on the Senate floor acknowledged that the inflation aspect of the bill is just not going to work. Listen. I want to take a moment to say a few words about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that we are debating uh, this evening. And I say so-called, uh, by the way, because according to the CBO and other economic organizations that have studied this bill, it will, in fact, have a minimal 
impact on inflation. Okay, if Bernie Sanders acknowledges that it will have a minimum impact on inflation, he voted for it anyway. All the Democrats voted for it. But the the worst part was there will be an increase in taxes and they are spending $80 billion with a B to beef up the personnel at the IRS so they can go after middle-class American taxpayers more aggressively. They claim, of course, that no one, no one, no one who earns less than $400,000 will end up paying more in taxes. That's one of the president's promises. And it's a phony promise because there was actually an amendment to touch that, uh, to test that promise put forward by Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho. It would have protected all taxpayers from uh, these new expenditures and manpower at the IRS. It would have protected them if people earned less than $400,000. So what happened? We'll tell you about that and more coming up on The MedVet Show. One of the favorite mantras of Democrats, and this goes all the way back to the Franklin Roosevelt era, frankly. It goes back before that, has been to tax the rich. The idea being that rich people do not pay their fair share in taxes. They escape taxes too easily. They get away from paying taxes. They move their accounts abroad to various foreign tax havens. They have all kinds of loopholes and special deals of which they can take advantage. And by the way, this is not entirely untrue. It is untrue as a general rule, as a general rule, and all the numbers show this, official government numbers and more, rich people pay a higher percentage of their income in taxes than middle-class people do, and far more than poor people do. Most poor people pay very low taxes indeed. That is the reality in America. However, are there uh, rich people, including some people very prominent, oh, I don't know, in the political world, in the presidential world, who paid very low shares of their income and wealth and taxes? Well, yeah, that happens, which is why... The Democrats could get away with this spending $80 billion, and the $80 billion are going to spend for this whole army of new IRS agents and this whole more aggressive effort to audit people is supposed to generate more money for the IRS. I believe their estimate is about $230 billion more. So, okay, you're... you're at putting in $80 billion more to hire people to work in the IRS to come after you with an audit. But uh, the Democrats say, don't worry, this is only going to hit rich people. In other words, I, I think most people will accept the designation that if you are reporting an income annually uh, in both your investments and your earned income, if you uh, have an income of more than $400,000, you're doing pretty well. That puts you in a, a very, very elite status. And they claim that with their bill, this new 
uh, Inflation Reduction Act, that the Inflation Reduction Act, yes, it will do a lot more in terms of getting people audited, but it will be only rich people who get audited. So Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho, very conservative senator, loyal Republican, had a very good idea, which is they did that whole voterama where they put forward and voted on various amendments to this uh, particular act, which was going to be going forward under reconciliation, which meant that it didn't need a 60 votes to break a filibuster. There was no chance of filibuster. They got to vote on the amendments, but then once the amendments were settled, they voted on the act itself, and they voted 51 to 50 to get it passed. But Mike Crapo's amendment was a very smart idea. It basically said that, uh, yes, we will go along with all this extra money for the IRS, but that will go along with a limitation on new uh, audits that would be placed on people would only be placed on people who earn more than 400000 a year. In other words, it would prevent the reality, and now it is going to be the reality because the vote came, and to put that amendment on to the act, it had to get 51 votes. It wasn't going to get Kamala Harris's vote, and it didn't. What uh, happened with it was that it was 50-50. Every single Republican, every one, including uh, Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and everybody voted for the Crapo Amendment to protect middle-class people from being harassed by the IRS, which is going to be beefed up. And for reasons that no one has explained with any kind of adequacy at all, every single Democrat, everyone, voted against it authorizing all kinds of new audits and hassles and uh, attacks, really, on ordinary American middle-class taxpayers. Because if you're not going to actually limit the, the extra attention to people who make a difference, who really could make a difference in bringing in more money to fund the government and to fund all these wonderful projects they're trying to put forward. If you're not going to limit that to people who are in the upper tax brackets, well, then this is going to be, in effect, a raise on tax liability on lots of people, and not just tax liability, but having to cope with the, the unspeakable misery uh, of an audit. And uh, that's just something that uh, uh, that is extraordinarily depressing and hypocritical about this particular act. Uh, Marco Rubio spoke in opposition to the legislation, and uh, he spoke particularly against its emphasis on so-called curbs on climate change. Uh, listen to Senator Rubio of Florida, clip 19. I don't think I need to tell anybody here. Our work is at its best when it's focused on what people care about. Let me tell you what people care about. They don't, they don't care as much about buying solar panels and electric cars as they do not having to live in a community where violent crime is rampant and you've got some crazy prosecutor that refuses to put people in jail, that refuses to prosecute entire categories of crime. People are worried about that, and rightfully so, and it's happening. We have these beautiful cities that were once world-class cities that have become unlivable all over this country. 
because we have these lunatic prosecutors that have decided they're not going to, the entire categories of crime they will not prosecute. That's the kind of stuff we should be working on here tonight, all night long. You're going to spend all night working on something, work on that. Don't waste time on stuff that doesn't matter to real people working every single day who are not going to be driving an electric car next year or the year after that, but they might get mugged, but they might be a victim of a violent crime. And so what this does is it sends to the Judiciary Committee and asks them, in three days, come back with some ideas about how you can spend just a little bit of these billions of dollars that we're throwing away on this garbage, how we can spend a little bit of that money to put criminals in jail so Americans no longer have to live in fear in their communities. And uh, look, that is as effective a opposition, it seems to me, as you're going to hear on this particular bill. Bravo to you, Senator Rubio. Uh, Speaking of bravo, there's a lot of praise coming in for Israel's new prime minister, acting prime minister. They're in the midst of yet another election. But uh, they actually reached a ceasefire far more quickly than anyone expected after what... uh, Israelis are hailing, and even the New York Times is hailing, as a major victory uh, against terrorism. Uh, we're going to speak about that with Michael Oren, who is a, a veteran officer of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. He's an American-born Israeli historian, uh, politician, former ambassador to the United States, and a member of the Knesset for the Kulano, uh, Kulano Party. Uh, Michael Oren coming up on the new... And on the Michael Medved Show, it is a pleasure to welcome back uh, Michael Oren, who is an American-born Israeli historian, author, politician, former ambassador to the United States, former member of the Knesset of the Parliament and former deputy minister in the prime minister's office. Um, Michael, uh, on Friday, just as uh, we were getting ready to end the week and go into uh, our Shabbat, uh, we talked to people about the news of the exchange of fire between Israel and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. And uh, it was interesting that it didn't at that time involve Hamas, though a lot of people thought that it would. Well, now apparently they've reached a ceasefire, and it appears to be holding. It's the middle of the night now in Israel. It is holding right now, this ceasefire, right? It is indeed. No rockets outside my window. <laughs> Very... <laughs> I, usually have a, I have a ringside seat here in southern Tel Aviv. I see them all. Oh, uh, wow. No, and, none. And they, and they, I know that the initial volley from Islamic Jihad, they managed to send up 70 rockets, but a lot of those rockets landed in Gaza, as I understand it. A good number of them, and Israel was able to prove for the first time, uh, it's not the first time it's happened, we were able to prove for the first time that the rockets fell short and killed Palestinian civilians. Uh, Palestinian civilians whose death otherwise would have been attributed to us, and we would have been condemned as war criminals. And in the U.N., they're debating it tonight. They're still condemning us for war criminals, for Palestinians killed by Palestinian rockets. Okay. First of all, Islamic Jihad is a much smaller group than Hamas. And and why did Hamas stay out of this fight? That surprised a lot of people. But did it? (laughs) And here it is. You know, Hamas runs the Gaza Strip, and Israel holds Hamas responsible. 
And in fact, nothing really happens in Gaza without Hamas uh, wink and nod approval. And Hamas is backed uh, by Iran, and Islamic Jihad is wholly owned and operated uh, by Iran. So they're both getting their money from the same sources. Um, so uh, Hamas had its own reasons. It's a good way of uh, putting pressure on Israelis to give in, give it more money. We get money from the, they get money from the Qataris through us uh, without actually exposing themselves too much. They send Islamic jihad, jihad out to do the hit job, and Islamic Jihad pays the price for it. But Islamic Jihad also comes out ahead of it. You know, we shouldn't view this um, by Western standards. By Western standards, Islamic Jihad lost. They, they had several of their uh, top leaders knocked off, eliminated. Uh, many, many of their, uh, of their operational centers, their ammunition dumps, their attack tunnels were, were destroyed. Uh, they managed to lightly injure lightly injured four Israelis only, um, which is extraordinary. It's a record. Um, so that by all Western accounting, they lost. But we can't view this as Westerners. If you're the Middle Easterners, and Islamic Jihad comes out as head because, hey, they fired 1,200 rockets at Israel. And the big goal for Islamic Jihad is not necessarily what's going on in Gaza. It's what's going on in the West Bank, in Judea and Samaria, and particularly in the city of Jenin, uh, where the Palestinian Authority and the Mahmoud Abbas has lost control. And Islamic Jihad has come out ahead. They actually have a foothold in a major Palestinian city. Okay, the, the um, Al Jazeera is reporting that at least 43 people have been killed, including 15 children, after Israel launched attacks on the Gaza Strip in response to threats from the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. What you're saying is that the investigation so far and the evidence so, so far shows that many, if not most, of those children who perished were the victims of Palestinian Islamic Jihad rockets, not Israeli rockets. And this has been the case in previous uh, conflicts in Gaza. Uh, we weren't able to prove it, but here we actually showed the rocket going up at the air and coming down in a Palestinian neighborhood um, and, and directly linked it, and Israeli forces were not operating in that neighborhood at the time. Uh, so that was pretty, you know, incontrovertible evidence that, that even the U.N. had trouble uh, trying to revoke. Um, and, uh, and still, they'll, they'll probably condemn us anyway. Now, Jazeera will probably condemn us anyway. But the fact of the matter is that one of the fields of battle here is not actually Gaza, but it's the international public opinion. Uh, we used to say that we used to worry about the impact of fighting in our area on the Arab street. The Arab street is not in the Arab world anymore. The Arab street is in London and Paris and, and, and in New York, the U.N. That's the Arab street. And uh, they're having a hard time condemning us uh, because of these images that came out of Gaza, showing the rockets falling on Palestinian neighborhoods, and also because the name of the organization, Islamic Jihad, it, it's kind of tough to sugarcoat that. Wouldn't you agree, Michael? Islamic Jihad. Uh, not exactly, you know, peace in Palestine organization. Right. Uh, okay, so if, speaking of peace in Palestine, uh, what about in Israeli politics? There's an election coming up in October, and... Uh, uh, right now you have a new prime minister, Yair Lapid, who is an acting prime minister, maybe very temporary. Does he come out of this with a burnished reputation, uh, and with particularly in terms of his partnership with Benny Gantz, the defense minister, do, uh, do they look uh, better or good after this event? Yes, very much so. Uh, he gave a speech tonight, which was very, uh, very diplomatic, very statesmanly-like. Um, he thanked the opposition head, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, which is very unheard of in Israeli politics. Uh, gave credit to everybody, not just himself. Uh, he called the people of Gaza to take a different road, 
uh, the road of cooperation and coexistence. We've been giving thousands of uh, entry permits to workers from Gaza, and he committed himself to continuing that policy. It was a very effective speech, and his party went up about one or two seats, got a little bump tonight in the polls. Uh, but that's a bump, and that could disappear you know, if housing prices go up next week. Uh, the fact of the matter is the people who love Benjamin Netanyahu will, will vote for him, and people who don't like him will vote against him. Uh, and not much is going to change, but certainly Yair Lapid uh, was able to portray himself as, a, uh, as again, a statesman-like leader uh, who was able to manage uh, a military conflict. Uh, not bad. And, and then, and also one of the things that the New York Times was amazed at was uh, Egypt helped to broker the peace, and uh, other uh, Arab states, with the exception of Bahrain, withheld the usual criticism of Israel not to jeopardize their growing friendship and cooperation with Israel. That's notable, isn't it? Well, no, not really. Egypt always brokers the peace. peace. Every time there's an outbreak of uh, conflict, everybody fighting with, with Gaza, whether it's the Hamas or Islamic Jihad, uh, Egypt is always our broker. Uh, it is interesting that the, the signatories to the Abraham Accords, Bahrain, the UAE, and Morocco withheld their criticism of us. Um, uh, clearly, there's, there's no love lost between them, and Hamas, and seriously no love lost between them, and Islamic Jihad, which, again, is wholly operated and financed, and for the most part, commanded by Iran. And uh, in terms of uh, the uh, threat from Iran, news speculation here about uh, the Iranians getting closer and closer to real nuclear capacity, quick comment. Yeah, it's my gut feeling that we cannot look when an organization that is effectively a proxy, an extension of Iran, fires 1,200 rockets at Israel, what is Iran up to? Right? Islamic Jihad wouldn't have fired a single rocket without permission from Iran. And my guess is, Michael, this has to do with the negotiations, the renewed negotiations over the uh, JCPOA. And the Iranians sending a message uh, to the West. We're, in, we're not the address here. The United States is the address. Europe is the address. Look what we could do in the Middle East just with 1,200 rockets. Uh, you better watch it or else we're going to get a nuclear weapon. Then you're going to see the mischief we can cause. Uh, so you better give in to our demands. I see this as part of the negotiations over the renewal of JCPOA. Wow. Uh, by the way, let me mention Michael Oren has a brand-new book coming out. He's an acclaimed writer of fiction as uh, well as being one of the greater historians of uh, our time, truly. And uh, his new work of fiction is called Swan's War. And coming out in October, Michael? Indeed. I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, and when, where and when is Swan's War set? It is set on an island off the coast of Massachusetts uh, in 1944-1945. It's about a, uh, a policewoman who has to track down a serial killer wow. that used on the island. Uh, we'll look for it and we'll publicize it when that time comes. Michael Oren, former ambassador to the United States from Israel. We will be right back. sit down in order to hear this, but it is definitive, it is decisive. The Republican National Committee has decided to uh, move the Republican convention 
Not to Nashville. Nashville is out. Uh, Tennessee is a state that Republicans should carry anyway. The uh, Republican convention will be at that swingiest of swing states in that swingy town of Milwaukee. The um, hotline has a commentary on that, and I think it's interesting and important. It says the RNC's decision to host its 2024 convention in Milwaukee was hardly a surprise. Three weeks ago, a site selection panel unanimously recommended Milwaukee despite a slim chance uh, that Nashville politicians would still commit resources to the convention. Last week, Nashville's Metro Council voted against a draft agreement to host the convention. The uh, Nashville, the city of Nashville, not necessarily the state of Tennessee, saying, hey, we don't want you Republicans. We don't want you here in Nashville. That uh, cleared the way for Milwaukee. But if anyone thinks the decision to host the convention in Battleground, Wisconsin, will help Republicans, history would suggest otherwise. As one GOP source reminded Hotline, in 2008, we were in Minnesota, and we lost Minnesota. Yeah, we were at that convention, too. In 2012, we were in Tampa, and we lost Florida. Yeah, we were in that convention, too. And in 2016, the Democrats were in uh, Pennsylvania, and they lost Pennsylvania uh, just as well. Does this mean that uh, it's a sure thing that the Republicans will lose Wisconsin? Well, they have to worry about Wisconsin this time. They have a race for governor uh, where <laughs> it's very, very close as to who the nominee will be. And they have one nominee who I think has an excellent chance of winning, Rebecca Clayfish, the former lieutenant governor. And they have one nominee, Tim Michaels, who I think is a much tougher race against Governor Evers. But we will see. Uh, we will see uh, what comes out in Wisconsin. They also have the embattled Senator Ron Johnson, who uh, may not have his skepticism about COVID and about vaccines, uh, may not count for him in his race for re-election. He is considered, uh, by a pretty big margin of advantage, the most endangered Republican incumbent. A Republican incumbent who is not on the ballot and uh, probably would not have any problem if he were. He's popular in his home state and across the country among conservatives. Uh, Lindsey Graham had uh, these comments about the so-called Manchin-Schumer Inflation Reduction Act, uh, clip 14. The American Rescue Plan, remember that one? That was supposed to make us make everything better. Well, it became a recession plan. This is going to make everything worse. I voted for a bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. I voted for gun legislation. I'm not going to vote for this. Uh, the minimum tax of 15% destroys expensing. Now, what does that mean? If a company buys a piece of equipment, they could expense it under the 2017 tax cut in the same year they bought it. That goes away. So CBO says... It disincentivizes companies for building factories, buying equipment, which would help us get out of recession. There's a 16.4% percent tax on imported barrels of oil that are going to increase cost at the gas pump. Uh, subsidies for Obamacare go to families making $304,000 a year, which I think is ill-conceived. And the bottom line, it's not going to help inflation. It's going to make everything worse. Okay, and the great thing 
and uh, it may not be a great thing in, in terms of how people live with it, but it will in terms of what its impact will be, is that on something like inflation, as we mentioned before, you can't fool people. I mean, people go shopping and they see the price of food, which I hear about from my wife. She does most of the shopping in our family, and I hear about it all the time. It is, it is very, very different. And when it doesn't go down, and it's unlikely that it will, uh, then people have to look at, at this particular legislation and the whole Democratic emphasis on it have to look at it with a uh, great deal of skepticism. Uh, speaking of there's no skepticism here, just sadness. It's sad news. Uh, Olivia Newton-John uh, passed away uh, apparently just now. She was a country pop, rock pop, and disco pop sensation in the 1970s, scoring five number one singles, including You're the One That I Want and Physical. After a breast cancer diagnosis in the 1990s, she fought for cancer research and awareness as well as environmental causes. Uh, the great historian David McCullough also uh, died within the last 24 hours. He was 89 years old. Uh, Olivia Newton-John, 73 years old. David McCullough wrote Pulitzer Prize-winning biographies on John Adams and on Harry Truman. His book on Truman is, is one of the great books of history. It is so much worth reading. I had the great honor of reviewing his most recent book for Commentary Magazine, The Pioneers, which was about uh, basically the fascinating history, and I know it sounds like a contradiction in terms, Marietta, Ohio, which was one of the first settlements in Ohio, one of the first attempts to realize the high hopes of the Northwest Ordinance, which was passed the same year as our Constitution. He uh, had a gift for bringing characters to life. He wrote a great book about the heroic construction of Brooklyn Bridge and much more. In fact, I, I can think of no contemporary historian who is more consistently readable and relevant than uh, the great David uh, McCullough, who passed on to his reward and will be read long, long after this. He was 89 years old. Uh, there is more that um, uh, Bernie Sanders has become a meme once more. Jeremy, do you know about this? I, I don't know exactly how. We will bring you information when we can. But photos have re reportedly emerged of Trump administration documents in White House toilet bowls. Uh, White House resident staff uh, periodically found wads of paper uh, clogging a toilet and believed the former president and notorious uh, destroyer of Oval Office documents was the flusher. Uh, whether some of those or how many of those documents were rescued from the toilet bowl, we don't know. And uh, there's also this report from NBC News 
that if Trump doesn't run in 2024, uh, there are concerns among the Democratic donor class that Biden would have trouble beating a younger Republican nominee, such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And uh, donors would be more likely to recruit and support alternatives, that uh, alternatives to, uh, uh, to obviously, uh, Joe Biden. And uh, then this, uh, the Pennsylvania State Senator Doug Mastriano, who is the uh, Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, he's running behind right now, and he looks like he's going to have a very tough race. He uh, uh, is threatening to pull out of a scheduled interview with the January 6th uh, Select Committee of the House. Uh, He is... uh, teeing up for a legal fight with the panel in the midst of his governor's race. Uh, Mastriano was, uh, was there on January 6th as part of the Stop the Steal protests with Trump. Uh, Axios reports Trump denied flushing documents as president. Uh, he, uh, Trump White House source recently provided photos of paper with Trump's handwriting in two different toilet bowls. This uh, through Mike Allen. Toilet gate? Uh, I don't know if that has a ring to it. We will talk about claims that this is the best week ever, the one just passed for Joe Biden. Does that matter? Is it true? Then why is approval rating still so low? We'll get to it in this greatest nation on God's green earth. 